A question that may have occurred to you over these last days is why do people practice meditation? (laughs) You know, in our rather busy and fast-paced culture, why take time out for this kind of activity? Why, in fact, come on retreat, carve out this amount of time from one's life? Of course, people have many different motivations for coming to practice. Sometimes people come to practice as a way of stress reduction, just as a way of cooling out from the stresses and tensions of our daily lives. In fact, this has been a doorway for many people now, kind of in the mass culture, people seeing the value of this. Sometimes people come to practice as a way of sorting through deep or not so deep psychological or emotional suffering. You know, there's a desire to understand the mind and how it works as a way of freeing ourselves from some kind of suffering that we're in. So that often brings people to practice. Sometimes people have a powerful aspiration for awakening, for enlightenment, you know, for that radical transformation of understanding who we are, what this is about. What's interesting in observing myself and other yogis over all these years <coughs> is that we may start with one particular motivation that brings us to practice, but very often it changes. As we practice, we open up to new possibilities, things we might not have even imagined when we began. And regardless of our aspiration, the path leads in just one way. It's a one-directional path. And the Buddha expressed it very clearly in the opening the opening lines of the Satipatthana Sutta. Sutta means discourse. And the Satipatthana Sutta is the discourse on the foundations or the abidings of mindfulness. So the discourse which is the source, really, of this whole meditative practice and many others. So it's, it's a core teaching of the Buddha. And this is how he began. He says, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of suffering and discontent, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, Nirvana. What is the direct path? Namely, the four abidings of mindfulness, the very practice we're doing. So when someone asked this morning why the Buddha called mindfulness of the breathing you know, a noble endeavor, it's because it leads to the highest, the highest liberation, the highest freedom. Tonight I'd like to give kind of general overview of this path of practice. You know, where we start, the different, some of the different stages we go through, The very first days of practice, and the first days can last 30 years, what we're doing is practicing calming the mind and collecting the attention. As you've undoubtedly noticed, whether you're a new yogi or you've been practicing for a long time, the first days of a retreat, very often we see the mind just running wild. You know, Thoughts and judgments we experience as these loud, demanding voices in the mind. They just come and they capture our attention, and we're lost in them. Flow of images, or lost in different fantasies. Now, there's the roller coaster of all the changing emotions that we feel you know, up and down, and happy and sad, and depressed and excited, and interested and bored and sleepy, and 
It's just this whole range of feelings that can come even within one day. How often do our minds get lost in thoughts of past and thoughts of future? And it's as if we spend most of our lives in the past and the future, and it's just these very few slivers of moments that were actually awake in the present. So this is what we find as we begin to pay attention to what our minds are doing, and recognizing this is in fact an important insight, because most people don't know this about their own minds. You know, if you just go up to somebody on the street and you ask them, you know, are you present? <laughs> oh yeah, I am. <laughs> you know? Because unless we stop and take a look, we don't know. It's so interesting, and some expressions in English so well capture this movement of mind. You know the expression, train of association? Well, what happens is we hop on these trains of association, and we have no idea when we've got on, and we have no idea of the destination. <laughs> you know, we don't know where these trains are going. And then somewhere down the line, it's like we wake up and we get off the train, sometimes in a very different mental, emotional environment. It's like going to a movie theater where they're changing the movie every two minutes. (laughs) Would you pay to go to... (laughs) And yet this is what our minds are doing, just every couple of minutes, going this way, going that way. So we practice calming the mind, collecting the attention. We keep coming back. Very simple object, you know, just to the breath, just to the body. It's a training. We're training the mind. And slowly, gradually, it actually does begin to steady a bit. You know, the duration of our mindfulness, the duration of our concentration begins to grow. The thoughts of course, are still there, but they're a little softer. You know, instead of being so compulsive or so demanding, the thoughts recede a little bit more into the background. We really begin to experience some spaces of inner tranquility, inner calm, a sense of inner relaxation. As our minds become less distracted, what happens is that we begin to feel our bodies in a very different way. Begin to feel what's going on in our bodies very intimately and very directly. And often, especially at first, what we feel may not be all that pleasant. You know, as we become less distracted, We are often tuning in to feelings of tightness and tension and aching and places of contraction or stiffness. This is common. You've probably experienced some of that in these last couple of days. Different kinds of discomfort, places of holding that we didn't even know were there. And this is in one way, what's so valuable about the practice, even though it's difficult. We begin to see and feel what it is that we're carrying in our lives, rather than carrying it unconsciously and building on it. But this is a difficult time, this is a difficult stage in practice. As the mind gets a little bit more collected and we begin to feel the body in this way, Because sometimes as we feel this discomfort, you know, the aching shoulders or the back or the tension in the legs or knees, the mind can get discouraged, you know, or disappointed. It's not really what we came for. It's important to remind yourself that the experience of these feelings are actually a sign of meditative progress. It's not pleasant, 
but it's a sign that we are no longer distracting ourselves. We're actually more present to what is there. So it's a deepening of practice, even though it's difficult feelings. So it's helpful just to remember that so you put it into some kind of context. I think Susan spoke last night about bit about the need for courage. We do need courage to be willing to explore pain and discomfort. This is really an important part of this whole meditative journey. Because how we relate to the body reveals a lot about how we relate to our lives. We can see a lot, we can learn a lot about our habitual responses from paying attention to how we're with the various painful or uncomfortable feelings. You know, we'd all like for our lives to be always pleasant. I don't think anybody's kind of volunteering. Yeah, let it, let's have some pain this sitting. We'd all like our lives to be pleasant, for our bodies to never get sick, for our minds to always be peaceful and happy. The problem is it's just not like that. Life is not like that. If we're alive, which is a fair assumption, (laughs) I think, life will present times of difficulty. It's going to present times when there's pain, when things are uncomfortable, when things are unpleasant. So this is just part of being alive. The question then is, can we be free in that experience? Have we trained ourselves to be open to these experiences? Carl Jung, the famous psychologist, had some good advice about this. He said, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. The latter procedure, however, is disagreeable and therefore not very popular. (laughs) It is disagreeable. And yet this is the process of awakening. We're awakening to what is true. We're awakening to what is there and to explore more deeply the nature of it. So what are some of our more usual responses to pain, to discomfort, to things we're not wild about? You know, sitting or walking and you feel some pain or tension in your body. One common response is that of fear or anxiety. You know, pain starts to arise and it can just feel the mind contracting out of fear. And what's so interesting about this, this particular pattern, is that mostly it's not fear about the moment's experience. It's fear about the imagined experience of the next half hour. You know, we have some little bit of pain or a little bit of discomfort or even quite a bit, and in the moment the mind may be fine, you know. But then we start a mat, oh, how will I ever endure this till the end of the sitting? So be watchful of that, because it's not, it's not really a response to what's there, it's a response to what we imagine. There might be the conditioned response of self-pity, what I call the inner kvetch. (laughs) You know, our back hurts, our shoulders hurt, our neck hurts. Oh, poor me. You know, everybody is really experiencing this great bliss and just, I'm the one, the only one suffering. And we go on and on and on like that. And we can can drown in self-pity. 
It's not that helpful. Sometimes in response to discomfort, to pain, to things we don't like, uh, there's anger. You know, anger, aversion at the pain itself, anger or aversion towards ourselves for having it. And so that's something else to watch as it arises. There might be patterns of avoidance. This is really common. And our society is very well-schooled in this. We just do things to distract ourselves from feeling unpleasant things. Now, how often do we simply get lost in daydreaming, lost in fantasy, rather than open to what we're feeling? It's not an uncommon pattern. So in meditation, we really learn a whole different way, a whole different approach of being with experiences that are difficult, that are painful, which will come. They come in meditation, they come in our lives. Most fundamentally, it's the practice of softening, of opening, of allowing, of making the space for whatever is there to be there. It's relaxing into it rather than fighting or struggling. A mantra that I've used a lot in my practice, and it's, it's kind of a magic mantra. Whenever you're in a place of struggle, this is surefire remedy. The mantra is, it's okay. Whatever it is, this pain, this physical pain, this emotional pain, this difficult emotion, it's okay. Just let me feel it. Let me feel it. Open to it. It's okay. So it's the reminder that we don't have to be in a battle. We don't have to be in a struggle. We can change our relationship to what's happening. And it takes practice. Because our habit with something unpleasant is to resist. We're retraining the mind. I had a few examples of this back in my old India days. One example is perhaps more germane than the other to your experience. But the first one is, I was practicing in Bodh Gaya, the place of the Buddha's enlightenment. And uh, when I was there, there there weren't many Westerners there at that time. And I was just living in this place called the Burmese Vihara. Like it was a Burmese monastery, but at that time Burma was closed, and so there were no Burmese people there, except for the, the monk, the abbot. And so the few Westerners who came to Bodh Gaya then would stay at this place. And in the garden of the Vihara, they had built these little huts. So I was living in a six-by-seven hut. So it was pretty small. And the hut had no door. It just had a, like a canvas flap you know, as a door. So I was sitting on my bed meditating, and I had been there quite a while, quite into my practice. And I was sitting on my bed one day, and as I'm sitting there, this cat wanders in and jumps onto my lap. So I just kind of, you know, lifted the cat up and tossed it out uh, the door. And about 30 seconds later, the cat came back in on my lap. I picked it up, kind of tossed it out. 30 seconds later, the cat went in. So this went on for quite a while. I don't know. For 15 minutes or so, we're doing this dance, you know, of me trying to meditate and the cat coming in and disturbing my meditation. Well, after, there was no door. I really had no way to keep the cat out. So at a certain point, and it took me longer than it should have, but at a certain point, I just changed my strategy. Okay, the cat wants to come in, sit on my lap, just let it sit there. So the next time it came in, plopped on my lap, just let it sit. About ten seconds later, it got up and walked out. (laughs) And that has always remained in my mind as an object lesson in surrender. Instead of fight, okay, just be with it. 
in the same vein, and this is this is another another of the India stories. At one point in the summertime, it gets very very hot there, you know, on the plains, like 120 degrees or so. When we could, we would go up to the mountains, uh, what they call the hill stations. Uh, and so, this one summer, I was going up to Kashmir, which was still uh, really open and safe at that time. A long bus ride. You know, it's, I don't know, a 14, 17 hour Indian bus ride. You know, the bus is a small, crowded, hot. And I was jammed into a seat right over the crankcase. You know, so the fumes, the oil fumes were coming up and the bus was rattling. And I was thinking that this is going to be torture. You know, 17 hours of this. So I just thought, okay. I'm going to stay on my breath. That's all. I'm, I'm going to just put my mind on my breath and stay there and keep it all out. So for an hour or two, you know, I was doing it and it was reasonably successful. But at a certain point, my mind was just getting exhausted, you know, because I was trying so hard to just stay fixed on the breath and keep everything else out. And I had a kind of mini satori. I mean, really mini, but <laughs> but significant. At a certain point, I realized it was completely the wrong strategy. And then instead of trying to keep things out, my mind would experience much greater ease if I simply let things in. So I opened my mind, I opened the awareness, and just let it all in. Let the discomfort in, let the smells, let the jostling, let whatever it was And when I stopped fighting the unpleasantness, it was still unpleasant, but I wasn't suffering with it. It was just what was happening. It was kind of flowing through. It was a much more enjoyable ride. So again, that was another lesson in letting things in rather than trying to keep them out. And we can apply that in our meditation practice and in our life. So that's the first change of strategy for dealing with discomfort. Surrendering, softening, opening, letting it in. The second takes it a step further. And we use the power of our mindfulness and our investigation to really go deeply into the feeling of the pain. So, for example, you're sitting and maybe there's a pain in the back, you know, or the shoulders. So the first thing we do is just go to that general area and recognize, oh yeah, there's painful feeling in the back. That's just the first step. Then see if you can recognize what the particular sensations are. So don't just stop with the recognition, oh, I have a back pain. Look more carefully, more deeply, what, is the, what are the sensations I'm calling pain? Might be burning, might be tightness, might be throbbing, might be pulsing, might be stabbing. But they're very particular sensations. Second step is to connect deeply enough with the sensations so we see what they are. Third step. Within that area of sensation, see if you can bring your mind to the particular pinpoint of maximum intensity. You know, within the whole area of sensation of pulsing or throbbing or heat or whatever, if you look carefully, you'll see most likely that there's one point in particular that's like most intense. Well, go to that pinpoint of intensity and see what happens to it. Very often, you may notice that that particular pinpoint of sensation changes or moves or disappears and the mind jumps to another pinpoint of intensity and then another, another, another. It's like following the dots. What this does, seeing in this way, reveals to us, not theoretically, it reveals to us in our very direct experience that pain is not some solid thing. That what we call pain 
is actually an energy field of changing sensations. There's a lot going on in that experience of what we call pain. And we can look at it more precisely, more intently. And after doing that for some time, you can back up and see the whole area again, and you play going in and then becoming broader in your awareness. We begin to feel the body, and not only places of discomfort or pain, but by doing this, we begin to feel the whole body as a fluid energy field. It's not the solid thing, the solid form we take it to be. Another whole level of experiencing what we call body. It's like looking at something through a high-powered microscope. You take a very ordinary object, and if you can look at it through a high-powered microscope, you know, another world is revealed. There's another whole level of reality. What we're doing in the meditation is focusing the microscope of our minds so that we're perceiving this whole mind-body process on a deeper and deeper level. So these are the first steps. We calm the mind, we collect the attention, we feel our bodies more directly, more intimately, more clearly. So all of this is quite tangible. From this grounding in the breath and in the body, from this stability of attention, it's then possible to look more deeply and insightfully into the workings of our minds. Because the mind is intangible, you know, more ephemeral. So we need the grounding, we need the stability of our, mind, of our body awareness, and then use the power of that attention to look into our minds. And as we do, and I'm sure you've done it to some extent already, we begin to see just the range of our own particular conditioned habit patterns and tendencies. You know, our own particular patterns of thought and emotion. All our likes and our dislikes and our judgments, you know, and our desires. And we all have our own particular pattern. We begin to see the inner commentary. We have an inner commentary about almost everything. Have you noticed? The slightest thing can trigger a whole run of comment. You know, all those quick little thoughts or quick little judgments about other people, people you don't even know. You know something, it, it, it amuses me to watch my mind, you know, especially out in the world. Where I'll just be online someplace, you know, and there'll be people in front of me. I just watch this habit pattern of the mind, just some little comment about everybody. <laughs> I don't know them, I'll probably never see them again, but it doesn't stop. More importantly, we begin to see the amazing amount of projection we have about other people, particularly those closest to us. As we watch our minds, it's quite astounding to see how much we live in the world of projection our own mind-created impression of how another person is, of what they're feeling. And often it's very inaccurate. As we look into our minds, we see the many machinations of the mind around self-image, you know, and how we present ourselves to others how we want to be to others. One point I was on a retreat, this was in Australia with Saira Upandita, and he was our Burmese teacher, is our Burmese teacher, and very strict, very demanding. 
teacher, and so the retreats are very intense, you know, and everybody is really observing the silence very strictly and moving slowly. And so one day I was going into the dining room for lunch, and I was second online for lunch. I'm going through the line, and the first person went in and was lifting the pot cover off, you know, the pot of food, and the person in front of me dropped it, and it made this huge clattering sound. And the first thought in my mind was, it wasn't me. <laughs> you know, where does that come from? <laughs> In one interview, a yogi once came in the kind of in, in recognizing this nature of the mind. They were, they said to me, "You know, the mind has no pride," <laughs> <laughs> and it's so true. I mean, we see these patterns; it will just do anything. So it's very helpful to realize and to recognize that all of us are a package of qualities. Now, all of us are this package of wholesome, skillful qualities and unwholesome, unskillful qualities. Unless any of you are a totally purified saint, there's a lot of stuff that is going to arise in the mind. If we can see that and recognize it and relax behind it all, just see, oh yeah, that's what arises then our mind becomes a lot more spacious. We're not so driven either to act on all of these things or to deny or repress them. We just create the space for them to arise and to flow through. Like sitting back and learning to watch this whole passing show of our body and mind. And it simply contains everything. All the different aspects are going to arise. One of the most essential meditative qualities that develops in our ability to relax and simply watch the passing show is a sense of humor. A sense of humor about ourselves, a sense of humor about others, where we're not taking ourselves and our minds so seriously because we see over and over again how ridiculous it can be. A sense of humor is very helpful. I recommend it to you. (laughs) Because it brings about a lightness of heart and more self-acceptance and a lightness of heart and compassion for others. It becomes increasingly clear that the more accepting, the more clearly we see and the more accepting we are of all the different parts of ourselves, the more accepting we can be of the different parts of everyone else it makes for a much easier way of being and relating in the world. And the poet W.H. Auden expressed it very succinctly. He wrote, Love your crooked neighbor with all your crooked heart. (laughs) And it's just that acknowledgement. What becomes very obvious through the meditative journey, through our practice of mindfulness and attentiveness, is that we are not asking for all these things to come. We're not inviting you know, all these thoughts and judgments and different emotions. They are just coming out of conditions. So when we see that, we can become more accepting And in becoming more accepting, 
we also see the very crucial difference between being lost in a thought and being aware of a thought. The thought itself is not the problem. It's the fact that we tend to get lost. We're unaware that it's happening. It's that sense, waking up from a thought, and I'm sure you've had this experience countless times already, you know, where you're just carried away, carried away, and then in a certain oh, I've been thinking. Don't neglect that moment. That's really a powerful moment to pay attention to because it illuminates very vividly what wakefulness means. So rather than get caught in the judgment of, oh, you know, there I was thinking again, which is just getting lost again, you've been lost and then there's that moment of recognition, delight in the moment of recognition and pay attention to the quality of mind at that moment. Because right in that moment, you are experiencing what wakefulness is. So it's, it's a very important moment, which happens many, many times. Now it's, do you know the feeling of you know, going to the movies and being absorbed in the story and really caught up in it, and then the movie's over and you go outside and there's that kind of, it's like that sudden reality shift. Oh yeah, that was just a movie. Right, and everything gets more expansive again. Well, what we're doing really is waking up from the movies of our minds. As we do this, as we get more accepting of the whole package, as we see more clearly the difference between being lost in a thought and being aware of a thought, we take it a step further then and begin to investigate the nature of thought itself. Have you ever asked yourself the question, what is a thought? Not what am I thinking, not the content, but what is this phenomenon of thought? It's very interesting to look at this phenomenon. There are countless thoughts in a day. They're happening all the time. What is it? What actually is it? What's so amazing about this investigation is that we see so clearly that when thoughts are unnoticed, they have tremendous power in our lives. Thoughts are running us. They're like these little dictators of the mind. They are, you know, and we're just, we're like the slaves to our thoughts. But what's amazing is they have so much power when they're unnoticed, and when they are noticed, we see them as being totally empty. There's nothing much there. They're completely insubstantial. So look, don't, don't believe any of this. Really look for yourself. So when thoughts are arising, if you can remember, just ask the question, you know, as a way of prompting the, the looking, ask the question, well, what is a thought? And my sense is you will see, at least at times, in the very asking of that question, the thought is gone. It's so ephemeral. One of the great Tibetan masters of the last century, Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche, he wrote something very apt about this, and it's so revealing of the nature of our minds and how we live. The thoughts that arise in the mind have no tangible reality or intrinsic existence at all. There is therefore no logical reason why thoughts should have so much power over us, nor any reason why we should be enslaved by them. Once we recognize that thoughts are empty, the mind will no longer have the power to deceive us. But as long as we take our deluded thoughts as real, 
they will continue to torment us mercilessly as they have been doing throughout countless lifetimes. Just that illuminates the power of mindfulness. When we're mindful of thought, we see how empty they are. When we're not mindful that we're thinking, we are enslaved by them. So freedom can be practiced in the moment. It's not some far-off goal. It's really, how are we in the moment? Are we freeing ourselves from being lost? Or are we carried away? Why is this so important? This is not like a, you know, some kind of philosophical description about the nature of mind, the nature of thought. It really is of crucial importance in our lives because very often it's not that we're simply lost in thought or daydreaming a bit. It's that mostly in our lives we are acting on these thoughts. You know, how many places of suffering in the world, of you know, violence and injustice and exploitation and all kinds of suffering, what's happening, what's going on? It's people acting out thoughts of greed, acting out thoughts of fear, acting out thoughts of hatred. And it's not only out there. We do the same thing in our own domain. So it's vital that we pay attention to our minds in this way. You know, it's, meditation is not really a hobby. Uh, it's not. It's... So in this meditative journey, we investigate the nature of thought. We begin to investigate the power of emotions. You know, that constellation of thought and sensation and feeling. Emotions are very complex. It's not like a simple thing that's going on. When there's a strong emotion, it engages so many aspects of our experience. Emotions are challenging in terms of awareness and mindfulness because we so easily identify with them and personalize them. Although thoughts are subtle, it's not that difficult to see that they arise and pass and we, you know, when we pay attention we can get a sense of their empty nature. But when there's a strong emotion, it feels like I'm the one who's sad, I'm the one who's angry, I'm depressed, I'm sad, I'm grieving, I'm happy, whatever it is. It takes a lot of practice of mindfulness, of openness, of surrender, of attentiveness to include the whole experience of our emotions in the field of awareness. Sadness arises, happiness arises, anger arises. Can you be with the emotion in the same way that you're with a sound? That's a challenge. You know, you can be sitting here, mind very open, very spacious, sounds arise and pass, and they might be pleasant sounds, they might be really grating, annoying sounds. But I think we all have the sense of what it would be like just to sit and be non-reactive. You know, we just create the space and allow the sounds to come and go. We're hearing it, we're not avoiding it in any way. But the mind is resting in that place of openness. Our challenge is to be with emotion in exactly the same way, because it is also another arising phenomena. It arises out of conditions, it's there, it changes. It's like cloud formations in the sky. You know, certain conditions come together, clouds form, the conditions change, the clouds disperse. The sky remains unmoved. Can we make our minds, our hearts, like the sky?
So we pay attention to the body, to the pleasant and unpleasant aspects. We pay attention to thought and investigate the nature of thought. We explore our relationship to emotions. And all of this we'll be talking about in more detail in the morning instructions. This is, this is just an overview you know, of the path. We finally explore the nature of consciousness itself. What is awareness? What is it that is knowing all of this experience? In one way, this is the great mystery of our lives. What is the nature of consciousness? When we try to look for it, where is it? There's nothing to find. It's like looking for space in the room. I know it's here someplace. (laughs) Because it's immaterial. And yet, this knowing or awareness is happening moment after moment after moment. It's really... (laughs) I experience it as a kind of miracle. You know, that the knowing is happening without any intention or effort on our part at all. When, when a sound arises, do you intend to hear? No. The sound arises, and that sound is known. Automatically, spontaneously, effortlessly. Why? Because the nature of the mind is awareness. The nature of the mind is to know. And in our practice we learn to recognize, come back to, trust, this innate knowing capacity of the mind. And it's so simple. It's so simple that it's so easily overlooked. Just with the breath, breathing in, breathing out, when the mind is undistracted, when we're not lost in thought, please notice that the knowing is happening all by itself. You don't have to do anything to know the breath. You don't have to do anything to know the movement of the leg in walking when the mind is undistracted. When we're lost, then we don't know. We're not aware. Susan was talking last night about the 14-year-old, <laughs> 11-year-old. So, uh, she's living with, uh, you know, and was saying, you know, trust your body. Well, another little mantra you could use, trust your mind, it knows how to know. That is its nature. So you don't need to be struggling in order to be aware. It's simply being present. And notice that when you are present, the knowing is happening all by itself. Does this seem clear? I mean, it's so simple. You have seven more days to to practice. I emphasize it because so often as people engage in meditation, there are self-imposed struggles you know, of getting something or gaining something or struggling to pay attention. And it's much more a process of coming back into the nature of the mind, coming back from being lost, coming back from being distracted. The awareness is already here. So just see if you can play with that and and remember that as you practice. Now, there have been so many books 
especially recently about the nature of consciousness and books on neuroscience and the connection between the brain and the mind and knowing. And a friend of mine is getting a doctorate in neuroscience. And I opened one of the textbooks. I don't think I... There was a single paragraph that I could understand. I mean, it was... So, it, because it's a whole language, which I didn't know. And I was so grateful that there was actually a very direct way for us to experience and explore the nature of consciousness. I mean, that studies kind of the, from the outside, you know, the medical aspect, the physiological. But we don't need to do that to understand ourselves, to understand the mind. All we need to do is look. When I first went to India, I had been in the Peace Corps in Thailand and got, got connected to the Buddhist teaching and wanted to continue my practice. So I went back to India to look for a teacher. And the very first thing uh, my, teacher, my first teacher, Munindraji, said, and it's what totally captured my interest, it was so simple, he said, if you want to understand the mind, sit down and observe it. That's all. There was nothing to believe. There was no dogma. There was no ritual. It was such common sense. How else can we learn about our minds except by sitting down and observing it? So this is our practice. As we get less caught by all the stories about ourselves and the stories about our experience, and we're connected more and more just to what's happening in the moment, at a certain point there's an important level shift that happens. And we go from the emphasis of what it is that's happening to the emphasis of how it's happening. Meaning we go from emphasizing content to process. The content becomes less important as we see more and more clearly that all of our experience is simply a passing show of phenomena. We see so clearly that everything is changing, arising and passing. The sensations, the thoughts, the emotions, the feelings, the sounds, the sights. At a certain point in our practice, we just see so clearly the content on one level is irrelevant because it's all just arising and passing, arising and passing. That insight into the changing nature of phenomena, because we know it all intellectually, but to see it clearly, to pay attention to it, is transforming. Because the more clearly we see the momentary changing nature of things, the less we grasp, the less attached we are. The less we grasp, the less we suffer. Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Zen master and poet and peace activist and really wonderful teacher. He said something wonderful about the teachings. He said, Buddhism is a clever way to enjoy life. (laughs) Happiness is available. Please help yourselves to it. Where does the happiness come from? The happiness comes from non-grasping. How do we train the mind not to rest? By seeing the impermanence. How do we see the impermanence? By paying attention to what's arising in each moment. So it all comes down to this great simplicity of mindful attention. And that's why the Buddha said in the opening to the Satipatthana Sutta, this is the path that leads to the highest goal, the path that leads to liberation, to freedom.
Lastly, we can understand that this entire unfolding journey, starting with calming the mind and collecting the attention, opening to the body, learning to relate to the unpleasant as well as the pleasant, investigating the nature of thought, of emotion, of recognizing the very nature of awareness, the innate wakefulness of our minds, seeing the impermanence, letting go of grasping, all of this can be held in the larger understanding that we are not doing this for ourselves alone. And this is contained in most beautiful teaching in the Dharma, what is called bodhijitta. Bodhi means wisdom or awakening, jitta means heart. So this heart, this heart-mind of awakening, and it refers to the aspiration that our mind, that our practice, that our lives can be dedicated to the benefit of all beings. So we undertake the practice based on that motivation, that we're not doing it just for ourselves. We're doing it to be of benefit to all others. And it gives a tremendous energy. You know, sometimes if we think we're just doing this for our own, our own welfare, which is a great thing in itself, because it will inevitably help others, but we can get caught up a little bit you know, in our own particular struggles, I found that by putting that motivation up front, rather than seeing it just as an inevitable outcome, but right up front, may my practice, may my life be for the benefit of all. You know, and it's just planting the seed. This is, this is a vast aspiration. This is not some small thing. So we just plant the seed. You know, and maybe at the beginning of a sitting or the beginning of each day, if you're so inspired, to reflect simply on that, on that aspiration, articulating it in whatever way you know, resonates with you. May my life, may my practice be for the benefit of all. At the end of a sitting or the end of a day, dedicating the merit you know, of our efforts I'd like to close with a teaching by one of the greatest of the Thai forest masters. He was like the grandfather of the whole Thai forest tradition. He was renowned as this great enlightened being and all kinds of... There's a biography of him. It's, it's, his name is Ajahn Man. And his biography, I mean, there's lots of magical stories about things that had happened. But through all of that, there's just this very pure vein of wisdom. So this is, this is from that book, his biography. He said, Of all the many things that people value and care for in the world, the mind is the most precious. In fact, the mind is the foremost treasure in the whole world, So be sure to look after it well. To realize the mind's true nature is to realize Dhamma or Dharma. Understanding the mind is the same as understanding the Dhamma. Once the mind is known, the Dhamma in its entirety is known. Arriving at the truth about one's mind is the attainment of Nirvana. Clearly the mind is a priceless possession that should never be overlooked. Let's sit for a few minutes.
When you're undistracted, see how effortlessly each breath is known. The nature of the mind is awareness, is wakefulness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.